On a misly, drizzly morning, nearly a hundred years ago in February 1925, Mabel Constant Jewess found herself walking up and down the Thames Embankment, nervously agonising over a decision that would change her life forever. Hello, I'm Jack Shillito, and welcome to My Aunt Mabel, Episode 2. In this episode, we'll look at how Mabel became a national treasure, but was airbrushed from history. Her personal life and its tragic moments, her stuffy, humdrum husband, and her extraordinary trip to 1930s Hollywood. Let's get into it. After performing at an amateur concert one day, someone approached Mabel and said she ought to try broadcasting. Whatever that meant. Bearing in mind we're talking about the very early days of radio, so terms we take for granted today, like the word broadcast, were only just popping up on the public's radar. Mabel knew nothing about the new craze of listening in, probably a bit like telling someone creative these days that they might consider producing virtual reality content and she hadn't listened to a radio broadcast herself. Yet her name was put forward and she was invited to attend the BBC's headquarters at Savoy Hill for a 10am audition. Pacing alongside the Thames on that February morning, doubts started to set in and Mabel began to wish she hadn't bothered going. I was an amateur, she says in her autobiography. I knew nothing about this broadcasting business. I should only be a failure and go through half an hour of nervous terror for nothing. Her family were none the wiser about her upcoming audition, so who would know she had lost courage at the last moment and thrown in the towel? And yet, Mabel possessed an inner fighting spirit and conviction that she was a good writer and performer. She lived by the principle that, as she says, I must carry out any undertaking to which I have set my hand. As Big Ben struck 10 o'clock, Mabel directed her nervous energy to a door in Savoy Hill and walked in. In the words of Jen Purcell, Mabel Constantius was a pioneer of British sitcom and soap opera and was incredibly important to the evolution of these genres, yet few remember her and even fewer have considered her life and her impact on British culture. Mabel was one of the first British radio comedians and a beloved star of the early BBC, best known as the creator and performer of the comic Cockney family, The Bugginses. Once a national treasure, writer and performer, Mabel has been forgotten, like so many pioneering women. Until very recently, women have been regarded as contributing less to the comedy genre, which could explain the reluctance to give Mabel her true recognition. The men who were prominent in early radio comedy and drama are well known, the women are far less so. Carolyn touches on why she thinks Mabel has been forgotten. I think one of the reasons that Mabel might have been forgotten is that comedy was very much seen as the poor relation of drama. And that drama was taken much more seriously. Uh, anything domestic was really frowned upon. Um, and that, you know, Constant Juris's greatest creation, the Buckingham family, was a um, domestic comedy. Uh, and that was really frowned upon by male critics. Um, who, who just weren't interested in it. They just thought oh, that was all, it was something for women and women's issues. And I also think that um, not only was comedy considered to be uh, a sort of second class thing, 
unless it was being done quite brilliantly by men. But I think there is a sexist element as well. Certainly in those days, they tended not to like the idea of a woman doing it. Um, and I think that there is a, a, a huge element of that. Um, and then of course, once people have, if they haven't been written about by critics, or haven't very been written about very much by critics, then that, that kind of just gets forgotten really, because if all the critics are men and they're writing about very important things that have been written by men, then they tend to not write about things that have been written by women and we, we just lose sight of them, they just become invisible. Mabel was an inspiring woman. Here's Carolyn again. She's just extraordinary. She, her career was late. Uh, in, in that she was four, in her early 40s by the time she did her first broadcast in 1925. And I, I found that very engaging because, you know, being an academic uh, and a playwright is a second career for me. So I, I really like the fact that she was a bit older um, and that she was, she, she just never, ever, ever gave up. She was so determined and um, she had real faith in her own material, but she was also very, very modest about it. Um, and she was terribly polite and very charming. And once I started looking into her further and read her letters, um, which are still on record at the BBC Written Archive Centre, you know, you realise what an extraordinary human being she was, how determined she was in a day when, you know, women weren't really associated with broadcasting. Women had been associated with uh, with, with um, the theatre and certainly the music hall. And comedy on the whole was derived from the music hall. It was visual gags, it was quite often a bit, a bit rude. Um, but Mabel was completely above all that, you know, Mabel was very ladylike. I just found all that intriguing as to how this extraordinary person um, had managed to sustain this really long career, not just through talent, but also through just sheer determination and, and basically by charming people and standing up to them. John Reith, the BBC's general manager and later its first director general, and the critics of the day damned women with faint praise which meant that their ideas and abilities were never discussed in print by critics, with the seriousness that men's were, and so scholars have lost sight of them. Mabel had a profound understanding of the medium of radio, and her accessible style endured from the broadcast of her first short radio play, Devoted Elsie, in 1926. Jen says that Mabel's emphasis on the everyday and the family had far-reaching impacts on the shape of sitcom and soap opera in Britain as their two popular lenses through which the nation sees itself. Jen's book about Mabel is titled Mother of the BBC. She says that Mabel was an unstinting supporter of actors and writers trying to carve out a career on the BBC. One actor specifically credited Mabel with helping her break into radio, remembering that... Mabel was extremely helpful. She talked to me and showed me some of the outstanding points that, left to myself, I doubt if I should have learnt for years. Having come to the radio in her mid-40s, many of the BBC's staffers and actors with whom she worked were closer to her son's age, and in her interactions with colleagues, she chose to perform the role of mother of the BBC. 
Mabel developed a maternal image with BBC employees, producers and executives in order to gain commissions for herself and others and to cultivate respect and loyalty. Jen believes that Mabel's role in developing entertainment on the BBC and the ways in which she cultivated her career make her the mother of the BBC and... She's the mother of the BBC because she's behind the scenes, you know, supporting all of, all of the staff members um, and also because she's putting women and mothers in particular front and centre in her entertainment. One of the reasons for Mabel's string of achievements in radio is almost certainly the sheer volume of her output. Not only did she have original and hilarious ideas, she had lots of them, and recognised the importance of producing huge amounts of material in order to succeed. Speak to a modern day creator, be it on YouTube or TikTok, and they'll tell you the same. They need entertaining, relatable content, but they also need to churn it out at a relentless pace to succeed online, to build an audience and to earn a living. Mabel pointed out that Broadcasting is different from any other kind of performance in that you have to constantly supply fresh material. Compared to say, writing or performing the same musical act which can run again and again. Fortunately Mabel was able to constantly supply fresh material which gave her an advantage over a more established comedians of the period. In her autobiography, Mabel describes the nerve-wracking circumstances of her first broadcast. She performed at 10 o'clock at night and before me, a well-known philanthropic lady gave a talk. She couldn't imagine a worse prelude for a comedy broadcast. She wasn't given a rehearsal and no one even told her how near to the microphone to stand. Whether it was before or after Mabel first took to broadcasting, a card was handed out to all comedians before recording their first broadcast. It read no gags on Scotsman, Welshman, clergyman, drink or medical matters. Do not sneeze into the microphone. <coughs> so, let's get back to the beginning. Mabel was born in 1880 into the Tilling family, a very comfortable middle-class London family. Her father, Richard Tilling, my great-great-grandfather, was the managing director of a successful bus company built up by his father, Thomas Tilling. When Mabel was born, the business would have been horse-drawn buses and cabs, headquartered in Peckham. As the 20th century rolled on, the business gradually shifted from horse-drawn to motorised transport. As a child, Mabel was educated at the Mary Datchelor School in Camberwell. As she says in her autobiography, the strain of early success there took its toll. Let's hear from Jilly. I think we can't underestimate now, looking back, that there she was, born 1880. She was in um, a school, Mary Datchelor, that was for very, very bright girls. And at 14, she was already working in the sixth form. So she was, she was learning with girls three years older than herself. And evidently that had some kind of effect on her mental health. And she says, you know, she became, I think, overwrought. And was sent off to a school down by the seaside in which she evidently didn't rate the education very much. And she says that she made herself very unpopular by telling them that it was rather inferior education, which you can imagine um, the teachers wouldn't like. But she had the ability, she got into Girton at Cambridge and her father was prepared to pay for her to go. And again, just thinking of that period of time, for a woman to go to Girton to be a blue stocking was an extraordinary thing. And her mother wanted her to stay at home and be with her, which was another kind of thing. So I think, um, 
we can't underestimate how bright she was and how in another time she would have done many, many different things. Clearly, from an early age, Mabel wasn't afraid to speak her mind. There's also a small moment of reflection later in life on her parents' refusal to consider her request to go to a dramatic school. My parents decided that my wish to go on the stage was only a craze. So many girls had it, but forgot all about it when Mr. Wright came along. But did they ever reflect how much less likely one would be to say yes to the wrong man if one had worked in which one was passionately interested? Why her husband-to-be, Athanasius, or Ath, Constant Juris was the wrong man, isn't completely clear, but we'll get into that in a sec. Despite an otherwise pleasant life, Mabel enjoyed with her parents, of wonderful holidays twice a year and no worry about money, she thought her life was too sheltered, as she writes, and that she had been led to believe that being married was all that was needed for a woman to live happily ever after. Mabel and her beloved sister Nora married the Constant Juris brothers in 1907, when Mabel was 27. They lived side by side in Sutton, a suburb on the Surrey side of London. Ath was an insurance broker who continued to live in Sutton until his death in July 1937. Bina, my housekeeper, must certainly have a chapter to herself. Mabel wrote in her autobiography. Because without her, I could not have a home. Albina, her actual name, came to work for the Constant Jurises when their son Michael was about six and they were still living in Sutton with Ath. As Mabel later wrote, She had not been in the house a week before I knew what a treasure had been sent to me. She is a beautiful cook, can sew and wash, mend a wireless set or burnt fuse, trim hats and turn her hand to anything. We have lived together now for more than 24 years in great contentment and understanding. She has nursed me with skill and kindness through so many illnesses. There is no difficulty that she cannot surmount, nor task that she will not tackle. And you will never see her out of temper or in a muddle. Just on a side note, my dad remembers as a boy going to see an old lady called Bina, but is none the wiser as to who she was and what relation, if any, she was. It's not clear exactly when Mabel moved from her home with Ath. There's no evidence of a divorce. But there is the briefest of references to desperately sad circumstances that may have contributed to their separation, as Jilly explains. She does talk about, in her autobiography, she talks about having a little boy, Tony, who died at four. And then she says Michael was my third child, so she maybe had a miscarriage. But that again is sort of very much put in a little box. Um, and all the adoration is for Michael. Indeed, as Mabel herself wrote. I had a little boy called Tony, to whom I was entirely devoted. And he died when he was four years old. Even today, I cannot write about it. Michael was my third and only surviving child and dare say I was an over-anxious mother. The grief of this loss is palpable even now. It's quite hard to hear that out loud actually. In a brief biographical piece about Mabel, radio critic and personal friend Collie Knox revealed Deep sorrow that sadness that has made her so golden-hearted a woman. 
Mabel told Knox that it was... Deep grief. I was stunned. I shall never forget that feeling. How I hated the sunshine. It seemed to mock me. And the world seemed so full of little girls and boys. Strong, vigorous little boys of four years old. Michael became the be-all and end-all of Mabel's existence. He was born in 1917, in the latter stages of the First World War, by which time Mabel was 37. Mabel was keen to stress how devoted she was to Michael, despite her burgeoning career. Let's hear from Jen. The public sort of casts a side eye at you. If, wait a second, you're, you're a performer, that means you're not always at home. Who's taking care of your son? And so if you read with that in mind, and you read her autobiography, there's a couple of passages in her autobiographies where she's really clear. Whatever Michael needed, I made sure he had. If he wanted me there at his school holidays, I was there. If, you know, before I went off to my performance, I made sure he was settled. I had a housekeeper who fed him. I had, you know, she's very clear in her autobiography. And this is 1946. She's very clear in her autobiography that Michael always came first, always came first. Because if you didn't clear that one, then the public wouldn't accept you as a female celebrity. As Caroline says, Mabel's life experiences helped her to create a more human, sensitive sitcom with the Bugginses. When we think of writers, we think of them as just being endlessly successful. Uh, but if you go through the material that the BBC written archives, there's uh, a lot of rejection slips. Um, and Mabel had quite a lot of material rejected. And one was a play about a divorced couple and the effect that it had on the children. Um, and it, 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 it was uh, very brutally rejected by the reader at the time. Uh, this was a bit later in May, this was sort of towards the, this was early, early 1950s really. So she clearly did feel very strongly about those things. Uh, and of course she did lose a child, um, which was very sad, which she didn't really talk about, she didn't really put into her place. So she was, it did make her very human. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Bugginses was so human, was because I think she'd, she'd had a lot of uh, quite tough experiences um, that made her very sensitive to what life would be like for a woman like Emily Buggins. We don't know much about Mabel's husband, Ath, mostly because Mabel writes very little about him in her autobiography. Mabel undertook an incredible journey to California, to Hollywood specifically, in December 1936, which we'll get back to in a sec. But as Jen says, she goes to Hollywood, December of 1936, she goes to Hollywood. And Ath dies in the early summer of 1937. Um, there's no, I don't, I don't know why she, she didn't take Ath with her. Uh, I mean, one would think if you go on a big trip like that, you might take your husband with you. Uh, but she took a, another friend of, of hers, another actress friend of hers went with her. Um, and she comes back. You don't hear anything about Ath. And then um, she's performing in a stage production and then gets the word that Ath has passed away. And, uh, you know, the press comes and asks her how she feels and, oh, I'm, you know, I'm devastated and everything. And the press asks her, well, are you, are you, you going to 
is the show going to go on tomorrow? And she, oh, the show must go on. You know, so the next day she's back performing. Mabel's full statement to the press was... Naturally, in a case like this, one feels that it will be an ordeal, but the possibility of loss of work for others has convinced me that I shall be doing the right thing if I put the profession before my private feelings. So, at least on the face of it, it doesn't sound like she was exactly in a state of grief or mourning. Ath and those in the Sutton Amateur Dramatic Club, or SADC, of which Mabel and Ath were part, may have found it difficult to accept that a middle-aged, middle-class wife and mother chose to forge a career beyond the home, ultimately eclipsing her husband both financially and publicly. In the mid-1930s, married middle-aged women were leaving the workforce, not entering it. As Jen says, Mabel probably didn't have Ath's approval. When you look at her contracts in the early period, they have to be co-signed with somebody else. Athanasius signed on that. And if you look at those two signatures, they're almost identical. And so what that suggests to me and to Jilly first um, is that she signed his name because she did not have his approval. She talks about this in her autobiography. She, he was embarrassed that the neighbors could hear her typing because it meant that she was working. And not only that, She's going out and making money, and in, she makes, she ends up making more money than her husband. And that's problematic, that's still problematic, but that's problematic most certainly in the 20s and 30s. So Ath has a real issue with that. Even though we don't hear Ath's voice, most likely he was not a fan of her being on the BBC. Even though she has, um, I think, um, a difficult relationship with Ath, and perhaps may have wanted to divorce him at some point, that would have killed her career. It just absolutely would have killed, devastated her career. Mabel's nephew, Dennis, with whom she co-created many shows and series, felt there could not be two more incompatible personalities. Mabel, the life of the party, and Ath, the latter-day Mr. Pooter. Mr. Pooter, just so you have the reference, was a fictional character in the comic novel the Diary of a Nobody, from 1892. Pooter was a middle-aged and middle-class clerk in the city of London. Apart from taking himself very seriously, he was an extreme example of self-importance, with the unhappy result that he was much snubbed by those he considered beneath him. So, for Mabel's part, there was perhaps no love lost when she began to live her own life. Jilly has some sneaking suspicions about what Mabel was up to. There's something quite interesting about Mabel in this regard, I think she probably had quite a few gentlemen friends. Um, I think she had, you know, but we don't really hear about that. But she was obviously a very charismatic person. And I think she got, she, I think I wondered whether something had happened with Michael because he got a cottage quite next to her in Bury only a little way, he, he rented a house for, for a couple of years. Um, and whether that was just purely professional, whether there was more. By which Jilly means Mabel's writing partner, Michael Hogan, by the way, not her son, Michael. Howard had definitely moved in, but I'm pretty sure he was gay. Um, he, he goes off to Italy, to retires to live in Italy, but you know, all of this stuff is not spoken about, so you never know. But her protestations about 
Michael and how much she loved Michael and how much he was the center of her life, um, I think was how she wanted to present herself. By which Jilly means Mabel's son Michael, not her writing partner Michael. And of course, again, as a woman in the middle of a war, um, as it were, there were so many women looking after children on their own. It, was, it wasn't quite as, it was an easier story to tell without going into too much detail, I think. I think people accepted it more. Um, but, um, you know, husbands killed at sea, that sort of thing. But of course, Ath was there somewhere, mildly in the background. So there's quite a bit of educated guesswork around Mabel's private life. There'd be a whole lot more scrutiny into her life if she was in a similar position today as she was then. At the time though, she somehow manages to avoid controversy and as Jilly says, You couldn't write an autobiography today without giving all of that information. Um, but she manages, she just glides, glides over things. Um, I think it's fascinating really what she was able to do in this flat she had in London. It also shows that actually if you were able to earn some money and keep yourself, you could do quite well. Um, you could lead your own life, basically. Mabel did indeed lead her own life. Let's get back to that California trip. In December 1936, Mabel's friend and fellow actress, Griselda Hervey, asked her to go to Hollywood with her. If you have the money, a trip to California now might not seem like a big deal. It takes about 10 and a half hours to fly there from London. But in 1936, the trip itself was part of the experience. Mabel and Griselda travelled first to New York on the ocean liner SS Normandy, which would have taken at least five days. They then had three days of seeing the sights of New York, and then they had a three-day train ride across the US from New York to Chicago, where they then caught a connecting train that took them to Los Angeles. So if you thought 10-ish hours was long, Try eight days minus a three-day stopover in New York. I love Mabel's descriptions of the US in those days. She decided the best adjective to describe New York was superlative. Here she is on the city that never sleeps. The traffic is faster and fiercer. The lights are brighter and cruder. The buildings are larger and higher than in any other city in the world, I suppose. Certainly one feels there that one is living in a film or a stage set. New York's railway stations are astonishing places, like cathedrals. The city keeps its trains underground and to get to them you go downstairs to a screaming smoke-filled inferno with several enormous snorting locomotives apparently champing to be off on their different journeys. I began to grow accustomed to being whizzed up in elevators to the 10th, 11th and 22nd floors of buildings, to the friendliness of the shop assistants who invited each other to come and listen to our English accent, to the wonder of being able to turn on the radio set in one's taxi cab, to the fact that America is not so much a nation as a collection of people of all nations. That final point is pretty profound, really. When Mabel finally reached Los Angeles just before Christmas, she fell in love with the place. Beverly Hills must have been one of the prettiest suburbs in the world. Dignified avenues of palm trees bordered the quiet roads. Little houses, each one different to its neighbour, 
and all of a dazzling whiteness lined the avenues. I never saw anyone go in or out of the attractive dwellings. Nobody ever seemed to sit in their inviting verandas. Nobody walked on the sidewalks. Or well, nobody walked at all. Everybody. Even one's gardener had a car. Not so different from today. At least the latter observations. I don't think anyone would describe LA's roads as being quiet these days. Here are some more of Mabel's enjoyable observations of LA. Malibu Beach, seen from the road which approaches it, looks rather like Shoreham in Sussex. Although the house we had was only intended for a summer weekend place, there was every comfort one could ask and a great many that one would not dream of expecting in a similar house in England. Americans appear to be very hard-working people. We had two newspapers delivered on Christmas Day. Bread was sold in cellophane wrappers, and if you wanted, you could have it already sliced. Americans eat so much starch. It's quite the custom for cornbread, biscuits, and cookies of every kind to be served hot with hot meat. After two months, Mabel begrudgingly left her friends in LA to make the long journey back home as her son Michael was convalescing in Austria ahead of returning to the UK for an operation for appendicitis. As Mabel returned sooner than planned for Michael, given that's where her devotion lay, maybe Michael's health concerns distracted her from an ailing, separated husband. So, now that we've covered who Mabel is and what her life outside of radio was like, you can hopefully start to see why I think Mabel was an amazing woman. If you're not yet sure whether she was the best thing since sliced bread, at least you now know that pre-sliced bread in a cellophane wrapper, no less, was once an exciting prospect. In the next episode, we'll look at how Mabel broke into broadcasting, how she fought her corner a hundred years ago to ensure she was paid equally, becoming a tough negotiator in the process, and her seemingly infinite creative output. Thank you for listening to this episode of My Aunt Mabel. That's time you could have been doing something else, unless you were doing something else, in which case, well done for multitasking. So I appreciate you spending time to learn about the life and times of Mabel Constant-Juris. If you've liked what you've heard and think more people should know about Mabel, please share the episode or the series with someone and leave a five-star rating and review. It helps others discover the podcast and Mabel's story. Feel free to get in touch if you have any questions, comments or feedback. You can email me at jack, J-A-C-K, at themediamoment.com. That's jack at themediamoment.com. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, Jack Shilito, with contributions from Jilly Bush Bailey, former actress and professor emerita at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London, Jen Purcell, Professor of History and Chair of the History Department at St. Michael's College in Vermont, USA, and Dr. Carolyn Scott Jeffs, a playwright and lecturer in playwriting and dramaturgy at the Loughborough University. The part of Mabel was voiced by my friend, Kate Walker. Thank you to all four for their help and support. And of course, thank you to my wife, Denise, for her gentle nudging to keep going with the project and general encouragement throughout. To read more about Mabel, you can visit themediamoment.com forward slash Mabel dash Constantjuris. That's themediamoment.com forward slash Mabel dash 
Constant Jurors. See you in episode three.